What made Scrub look so dingy in Jill 2, if she could only have seen herself, was the splendor of their surroundings. I had better describe them at once. Through a cleft in those mountains, which Jill had seen far inland as she approached the land, the sunset was pouring over a level lawn. On the far side of the lawn, its weather vanes glittering in the light, rose a many-towered and many-turreted castle, the most beautiful castle Jill had ever seen. On the near side was a quay of white marble and moored to its side, and, and tied to this the ship, a tall boat with high forecastle and high poop, gilded and crimson, with a great flag at the masthead, and many banners waving from the decks and a row of shields bright as silver along the bulwarks. The gangplank was laid to her, and at the foot of it, just ready to go on board, stood an old, old man. He wore a rich mantle of scarlet, which opened in front to show his silver mail shirt. There was a thin circlet of gold on his head. His beard, white as wool, fell nearly to his waist. He stood straight enough leaning one hand on the shoulder of a richly dressed lord who seemed younger than himself. But you could see he was very old and frail. He looked as if a puff of wind could blow him away, and his eyes were watery. Immediately in front of the king, who had turned round to speak to his people before going on board the ship, there was a little chair on wheels, and harnessed to it a little donkey. Not much bigger than a big... Dog, In this chair sat a fat little dwarf. He was as richly dressed as the king, but because of his fatness and because he was sitting hunched up among cushions, the effect was quite different. It made him look like a shapeless little bundle of fur and silk and velvet. He was as old as the king, but more hale and hearty, with very keen eyes. His bare head, which was bald and extremely large, shone like a gigantic billiard ball. In the sunlit light. Far back in a half-circle stood what Jill at once knew to be courtiers. They were all well worth looking at for their clothes and armor alone. As far as that went, they looked more like a flower bed than a crowd. But really, what really made Jill open her eyes and mouth as wide as they could go was the people themselves. For one was about... One in every five was human. The rest were things you never seen in our world. Fawns, satyrs, centaurs. Jill could give a name to these because she had seen pictures of them. Dwarves, too. And there were a lot of animals she knew as well. Bears, badgers, moles, leopards, mice, all kinds of different birds. But then they were so very different from the animals which one called by the same names in England. Some of them were much bigger. The mice, for instance, stood on their hind legs and were over two feet tall, but quite. Apart from that, they all looked different. You could see by the expression on their faces that they could talk and think just as well as you could. Golly, thought Jill, so it's true after all. But the next moment she added, I wonder, are they friendly? For she had just noticed on the outskirts of the crowd one of 
two giants and some people whom she couldn't give a name to at all. At that moment, Aslan and the signs rushed back into her mind. She had forgotten all about them for the last half hour. Scrub, she whispered. Scrub, quick. Do you see anyone you know? So you've turned up again, have you? said Scrub disagreeably. For which she had some reason. Well, keep quiet, can't you? I want to listen. Don't be a fool, said Jill. There isn't a moment to lose. Don't you see the old friend here? Because you've got to go and speak to him at once. What are you talking about? said Scrub. It's Aslan, the lion. He says you've got to go, said Jill. I've seen him. Oh, you have, have you? What did he say? He said the very first person you saw in Narnia would be an old friend, and you've got to go speak to him at once. Well, there's nobody here I've seen in my life before, and anyway, I don't know whether this is Narnia. Thought you said you'd been here before, said Jill. Well, you thought wrong then. Well, I like that. You told me, for heaven's sake, dry up and let's hear what they're saying. The king was speaking to the dwarf, but Jill couldn't hear what he said. As far as she could make out, the dwarf made no answer, though he nodded and wagged his head a great deal. Then the king raised his voice and addressed the whole court. But his voice was so old and cracked that she could understand very little of his speech, especially since it was all about people and places she had never heard of. When the speech was over, the king stooped down and kissed the dwarf on both cheeks, straightened himself, raised his right hand as if in blessing, and went slowly and with feeble steps up the gangway and on board the ship. The courtiers, the courtiers appeared to be greatly moved by his departure. Handkerchiefs got, were got out. Sounds of sobbing were heard in every direction. The songway was cast off. Sorry, the gangway was cast off. Trumpets sounded from the poop, and the ship moved away from the quay. It was being towed by a rowing boat, but Jill didn't see that. Now, said Scrub, but he didn't get any further because at that moment a large white object... Jill thought for a second that it was a kite, came gliding through the air and alighted at his feet. It was a white owl, but so big that it stood a good that it stood as high as a good sized dwarf. It blinked and peered as if it was short sighted and put its head a little to one side and said in a soft hooting kind of voice, To who to who who are you? My name's Scrub, and this is Pole, said Eustace. Would you mind telling us where we are? In the land of Narnia, at the king's castle of Caraparavel. Is that the king who just, who's just taken the ship? Too true, too true, said the owl, sadly shaking his big head. But who are you? There's something magical about you two. I saw you arrive, you flew. Everyone else was so busy. "'seeing the king off that nobody knew. "'Except me. "'I happened to notice you. "'You flew. "'We were sent here by Aslan,' "'said Eustace in a low voice. "'To who, to who?' said the owl, "'ruffling out his feathers. "'This is almost too much for me, "'so early in the evening. "'I'm not quite myself till the sun's down. "'And we've been sent to find the lost prince.' said Jill, who had been anxiously waiting to get into the conversation. It's the first I've heard about it, said Eustace. What prince? 
You had better come and speak to the Lord Regent at once, said the owl. That's him, over there in the donkey carriage. Trumpkin the dwarf. The bird turned and began leading the way, muttering to itself, Hoo-hoo, to-hoo, what to do? I can't think clearly yet, it's too early. What is the king's name? asked Eustace. Caspian the tenth, said the owl, and Jill wondered why Scrub had suddenly pulled up short in his walking and turned an extraordinary color. She thought she had never seen him look so sick about anything, but before she had time to ask any questions, they had reached the dwarf, who was just gathering up the reins of his donkey and preparing to drive back to the castle. The crowd of courtiers had broken up and were going in the same direction, by ones and twos and little knots, like people coming away from watching a game or a race. To who? Ahem! Lord Regent, said the owl, stooping a little and holding its beak near the dwarf's ear. Hey, what's that? said the dwarf. Two strangers, my lord, said the owl. Rangers? What do you mean? said the dwarf. I don't see no... All I see is... I only see two uncommonly grubby man-cubs. What do they want? My name's Jill, said Jill, pressing forward. She was very eager to explain the important business on which they had come. The girl's called Jill, said the owl, as loud as it could. What's that? said the dwarf. The girls are all killed. I don't believe a word of it. What girls? Who killed them? Only one girl, my lord, said the owl. Her name is Jill. Speak up, speak up, said the dwarf. Don't stand there buzzing and twittering in my ear. Who's been killed? Nobody's been killed, hooted the owl. Who? Nobody. All right, all right, you don't need to shout. I'm not so deaf as all that. What do you mean by coming here to tell me that nobody's been killed? Why should anyone have been killed? Better tell him I'm Eustace, said Scrub. The boy's Eustace, my lord, hooted the owl as loud as it could. Useless, said the dwarf irritably. I dare say he is. Is that any reason for bringing him to court, eh? Not useless, said the owl. Eustace! Used to it, is he? I don't know what you're talking about, I'm sure. I tell you what it is, Master Glimfeather. When I was a young dwarf, there used to be talking beasts and birds in this country who really could talk. There wasn't all this mumbling and muttering and whispering. It wouldn't have been tolerated for a moment, not for a moment. Uranus, my trumpet, please. A little fawn, who had been standing quietly beside the dwarf's elbow all the time, now handed him a silver ear trumpet. It was made like the musical instrument called a serpent, so that the tube curled right round the dwarf's neck. While he was getting it settled, the owl, Glimfeather, suddenly said to the children in a whisper, My brain's a bit clearer now. Don't say anything about the lost prince. I'll explain later. It wouldn't do, wouldn't do. To who? Oh, what a to-do! Now, said the dwarf, If you have anything sensible to say, Master Glimfeather, 
Try and say it. Take a deep breath and don't attempt to speak too quickly. With help from the children, and in spite of a fit of coughing on the part of the dwarf, Glimfeather explained that the strangers had been sent by Aslan to visit the court of Narnia. The dwarf glanced quickly up at them with a new expression in his eyes. Sent by the lion himself, eh? he said. And from, um, from that other place beyond the world's end, eh? Yes, my lord, bawled Eustace into the trumpet. All right now, all right now. You're too loud now. Come along, sit down. Sit down. Okay, okay. Ella, you're wrestling. <sighs> okay. Ella, you're wrestling. All right, where was I? Hmm. Son of Adam and daughter of Eve, eh? said the dwarf. The people at Experiment House hadn't heard of Adam and Eve, so Jill and Eustace couldn't answer this. But the dwarf didn't seem to notice. Well, my dears, he said, taking first one and then the other by the hand and bowing his head a little. You are very heartily welcome. If the good king, my poor master, had not this very hour set sail for seven isles, he would have been glad of your coming. It would have brought back his youth. And for a moment, for a moment... And now it is high time for supper. You shall tell me your business in full council tomorrow morning. Master Glimfeather, see that bedchambers and suitable clothes and all else are provided for these guests in the most honorable fashion. And Glimfeather, in your ear. Here the dwarf put his mouth close to the owl's head and, no doubt, intended to whisper, but, like other deaf people, he wasn't a very good judge of his own voice, and both children heard him say, See that they're properly washed. After that, the dwarf touched up his donkey, and it set off towards the castle at something between a trot and a waddle. It was a very fat little beast, while the fawn, the owl, and the children followed at a rather slower pace. The sun had set, and the air was growing cool. They went across the lawn, and then through an orchard, and so to the north gate of Caraparaval, which stood wide open. Inside they found a grassy courtyard. Lights were already showing from the windows of the great hall on their right, and from a more complicated mass of buildings straight ahead. Into, the, into these the owl led them, and there a most delightful person was called to look after Jill. She was not much taller than Jill herself, and a good deal slenderer, but obviously full-grown, graceful as a willow, and her hair was willowy too. And there seemed to be moss in it. She brought Jill to a round room in one of the turrets, where there was a little bath sunk in the floor and a fire of sweet-smelling woods burning in the flat hearth and a, f and a lamp hanging by a silver chain from the vaulted roof. The window looked west into the strange land of Narnia, and Jill saw the red, the red remains of the sunset still glowing behind the distant mountains. It made her long for more adventures and feel sure that this was only the beginning. 
When she had had her bath and brushed her hair and put on the clothes that she had, had been laid out for her, they were the kind that not only felt nice, but looked nice and smelled nice and made nice sounds when you moved as well. She would have gone back to gaze out of that exciting window, but she was interrupted by a bang on the door. Come in, said Jill, and in came Scrub, also bathed and splendidly dressed in Narnian clothes, but his face didn't look as if he was enjoying it. Oh, here you are at last, he said crossly, flinging himself into a chair. I've been trying to find you for ever so long. Well, now you have, said Jill. I say, Scrub, isn't it all simply too exciting and scrumptious for words? She had forgotten all about the signs and the lost prints for the moment. Oh, that's what you think, is it? said Scrub. And then after a pause, I wish to goodness we'd never come. Why on earth? I can't bear it, said Scrub. Seeing the king, Caspian, a doddering old man like that, it's, it's frightful. Why? What harm is it to you? Oh, you don't understand. Now that I come to think of it, you couldn't. I didn't tell you that this world has a different time from ours. How do you mean? The time you spend here doesn't take up any of our time. Do you see? I mean, however, however long we spend here, we shall still get back to Experiment House at the moment we left it. That won't be much fun. Oh, dry up. Don't keep interrupting. And when you're back in England, in our world, you can't tell how time is going here. It might be any number of years in Narnia while we're having one year at home. The Pevensies explained it all to me, but like a fool I forgot about it. And now apparently it's been about seventy years, Narnian years, since I was here last. Do you see now? And I come back and find Caspian an old, old man. Then the king was an old friend of yours, said Jill. A horrid thought had struck her. I should jolly well think he was, said Scrub miserably. About as good a friend as a chap could have. And last time he was only a few years older than me. And now to see that old man with a white beard and to remember Caspian, as he was the morning we captured the Lone Islands. Or in the fight with the sea serpent. Oh, it's frightful. It's worse than coming back and finding him dead. Oh, shut up, said Jill impatiently. It's far worse than you think. We've miss miffed the first sign. Of course, Scrub did not understand this. Then Jill told him about his her conversation with Aslan and the four signs and the task of finding the lost prince which had been laid upon them. So you see, she wound up, you did see an old friend, just as Aslan said, and you ought to have gone and spoken to him at once, and now you haven't. And everything is going wrong from the very beginning. Yeah, go ahead. But how was I to know? said Scrub. If you'd only listened to me when I tried to tell you, we'd be all right, said Joe. Yes, and if you hadn't played the fool on the edge of that cliff and jolly nearly murdered me, all right. I said murder, and I'll say it again as often as I like, so keep your hair on. 
We'd have come together and both known what to do. I suppose he was the very first person you saw, said Jill. He must have been here hours before me, and you sure didn't see anyone else first. I was only here about a minute before you, said Scrub. He must have blown you quicker than me, making up for lost time, the time you lost. Don't be a perfect beast, Scrub, said Jill. Hello, what's that? It was the castle bell ringing for supper. And thus, what looked like turning into a first-rate quarrel was happily cut short. Both had a good appetite by this time. Supper in the great hall of the castle was the most splendid thing either of them had ever seen. For though Eustace had been in the world before, he had spent his whole visit at sea and knew nothing of the glory and courtesy of the Narnians at home in their own land. The banners hung from the roof, and each course came in with trumpeters and kettle drums. There were soups that would have made your mouth water to think of, and lovely fishes called pavenders, and venison, and peacock, and pies, and ices, and jellies, and fruit, and nuts, all manner of wines and fruit drinks. Even Eustace cheered up and admitted that it was, quote, something like... End quote. And when all the serious eating and drinking was over, a blind poet came forward and struck up the grand old tale of Prince Cor and Erevis, and the horse Bree, which is called The Horse and His Boy, and tell of an adventure that happened in Narnia and Calorman in the lands between in the Golden Age when Peter was High King in Caer Paravel. I haven't time to tell it now though it is well worth hearing. When they were dragging themselves upstairs to bed, yawning their heads off, Jill said, I bet we sleep well tonight, for it had been a full day, which just shows how little anyone knows what is going to happen to them next. All right, kiddos. That's the end of the chapter. Off to bed. Put your glasses away. Off to bed now. That's how I record. Handsome Jack. Is everybody in bed yet? All right, put your glasses away. I gotta put him to bed. Hmm. You're brushing mom's hair? Yeah. Now I'm using my hands. Why? Because. Oh, didn't know that. All right, now we, we need to get in bed. Come on now. But I. Tiny, can you fix his PJs? Yeah, he you does. get in bed. Me? You get in bed. I'll use the brush. Thank you. Short of, we're short of bed at the moment, so my poor Ella has to sleep on cushions. My blanket's in the in the in mom's mom's room. All right, well, go get it. Okay. Who's pink toothbrush? Ella. 
Go put it away. Get she back here. I think she did. Here it is, Ella. Time to go night night. Lay down. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> 